Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Jason W. Custer, MD, about the article, Diagnostic Errors in the Pediatric and Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, a Systematic Review, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2015. Dr. Custer is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics, Division of Pediatric Critical Care at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, Maryland, and medical director of the Pediatric ICU and assistant residency program director. Thank you for joining us today, Jason. Thanks for having me. So diagnostic errors obviously are uh, an important concern. They may lead to preventable morbidity and mortality, perhaps even more so in ICU patients than in other hospitalized patients. Tell us why, what led you to do this study looking at diagnostic errors in the pediatric and neonatal ICUs? Well, I think part of it came from some anecdotal experiences as a fellow uh, in patients where I felt as though we arrived at the diagnosis possibly later than we should have or could have had we sort of explored the right diagnostic testing. Uh, And then a group of us began looking at diagnostic error in adult ICU patients, and we were able to publish that study. And then an offshoot of that was to look at pediatric patients and to try to understand the differences between adult and pediatrics. And then the second question was, is there difference between the PICU population and the NICU population. Our hypothesis was that there would potentially be some subtle differences. We just wanted to find out a little bit more about what was out in the literature currently published and potentially design some sort of prospective study that we could be looking at the process of diagnosis and diagnostic error in real time. So what did you do in this study? Well, first we started with a literature review. Um, We used some librarian resources and looked in PubMed mostly and queried PubMed for anything that sort of hit our search criteria with autopsy and intensive care and variations on those search terms. And then really returned a number of studies to start with and really looked through the abstracts to figure out if we're talking about what we were thinking about studying, and then whittled things down first on the adult side into the studies that covered adult critical care medicine, and then in the pediatric side, and divided them both into NICU and PICU. And the ones that actually met our inclusion criteria really was fairly specific with diagnostic errors related to autopsy findings that used a specific set of criteria called the Goldman Classification System for Diagnostic Error. So we really only ended up with 13 studies, seven with PICU patients and six with NICU patients that we included in the final review. Can you tell us a little bit about the Goldman classification? Yeah, the Goldman classification criteria has been around for almost 30 years looking at autopsy-related misdiagnosis, and they classify them into major errors and minor errors. Major errors are considered type 1 or type 2. Type 1 errors are described as a major misdiagnosis with potential adverse impact on survival that would have changed management. And class 2 errors are major diagnosis with no potential impact on survival that would not have changed management. And so type 1 errors, I think, are the most interesting from a mortality standpoint. And obviously, all of this is related to a retrospective approach, sort of a chart review by experts after the patient has died to compare the autopsy findings to what's documented in the chart. And so I think most of us would be skeptical that 
there could be potential error in there because we're relying on retrospective chart documentation and then comparing that with autopsy findings. And so I think, you know, right there, sort of our detection method for diagnostic errors isn't great. So I think we drastically underestimate. The Goldman criteria go on to have type 3 and 4, and they're classified as minor misdiagnoses. And the minor misdiagnoses are class 3 would be a diagnosis related to terminal disease but not related to the cause of death, and class 4 is just a grab bag of other misdiagnoses. And so type 1 and type 2 are sort of the most interesting, but they don't really further delineate what is considered major, how they determined if it would have changed management uh, while the patient was alive. So I think, you know, first that brings up in my mind sort of the first question moving forward is how can we do a better job of even detecting diagnostic error? Because we don't want to wait until autopsy to find out that we're not doing it correctly. Right. So what did you find in this literature review? Well, what we found was, I think, my first conclusion was just the paucity of available literature that we could compare in this population. And uh, we found sort of a similar but paucity of literature in the adult population, although there, were, there was more studies that we included in our uh, adult analysis. In the pediatric analysis, like I said, we've, we only found 13 studies, seven that included PICU patients and six in the NICU. And for the most part, what we found was of the patients with a class um, in the PICU, class one errors were detected in 6.4% of the autopsies. And the majority of those patients, the diagnosis that was missed was related to infection or vascular events. And by vascular events, we categorize those as a missed hemorrhage, a missed thrombosis, and I also included an ischemic bowel injury within a vascular event. Infections broke down fairly evenly between a misbacterial infection, a misviral infection, and a misfungal infection. And I was limited by what these studies actually reported. And so there were a number of studies that did not specifically indicate an organism. And so they just said infection or they said pneumonia. So I didn't have a specific organism for a number of studies. And so in the NICU population, there were less class one errors, but again, the class 1 errors in the NICU tended to be related to infection, and the overwhelming majority of the infections that were, that were missed and detected on autopsy were related to fungal infections. And then interestingly, but not surprisingly, the NICU population tend to have more missed congenital malformations in, compared with the PICU population, as well as missed genetic and metabolic diseases that were detected postmortem. What were the autopsy rates? Did you get data on that? We do. The autopsy rate in the PICU studies, so of the seven studies that were included, there were 1,063 PICU deaths, and 498 of those were autopsied. So that's an autopsy rate of 46%. Mm-hmm. And in the NICU data, out of the six studies, there were a total of 2,124 deaths and 1,259 autopsies. So that's a 59% autopsy rate. So I think that's another one of sort of the, the major takeaways for me. And overall, there are recent studies showing that overall autopsy rates have declined in the U.S. And so we attempted to look at if you had autopsied 100% of the death, what would the error rates be? But our data was fairly limited for us to draw that conclusion, how that would break down if we autopsied everyone. How, how does this, uh, the information that you've gotten differ from adults, the autopsy rates and the major types of missed diagnoses? So the autopsy rates are fairly similar. So the, the adult study, uh, we found 31 studies to include in our systematic review. They had almost 6,000 autopsies included under that, and they had an, an autopsy rate of 43%. 
the misdiagnosis percentages out of that 43% were actually fairly similar in the PICU population. The adult study had the same conclusions as the most common misdiagnoses, which were both vascular and infectious. And so our PICU data was very similar to adult ICU data. And the NICU differed in the same way in the fact that there were more congenital malformations picked up in the NICU population and genetic metabolic, which you wouldn't expect to see in an adult, particularly in the, the class one error. They wouldn't usually have an undiagnosed congenital malformation that led to their death that nobody knew about. Right, right. It's interesting that the infections that were missed in the neonatal population were mostly fungal, whereas in the PICU, they were across different types of organisms. Right, exactly. And I find that interesting as well. And I think that, you know, that if there's, if there's one takeaway I would think about is if, as a neonatologist would be to think about potentially treating fungal illness, you know, if the, if the patient is not fitting into a diagnostic category mm-hmm. and looks like infection, maybe using an antifungal and because fungal cultures oftentimes take a long time to result if if they come back if they positive come back at, at all. all right yeah and similarly viral and viral cultures often are not revealing right our yield's not very good yeah for either one of those exactly Although we can't always do something about those, but anyway do you have any data on risk factors for diagnostic errors when are errors more likely to be made or diagnoses more likely to be missed? Well, that's something that, you know, was sort of fundamental to my question is what can I do in my own practice or in any practice to sort of limit diagnostic error from happening? And unfortunately, the studies that that we were able to include here didn't uniformly ask the same question. But one of the studies did show that at least diagnostic uncertainty before the patient dies did correlate to diagnostic error in the PICU population. This was not a finding in the adult population, but somewhere in charting or in sort of retrospectively asking the team, you know, they say, yeah, I wasn't really sure what was going on there. So you would think that that may correlate. I also think that that correlates with more frequent autopsy. Uh In my Uh experience, if if you had more questions... I think most clinicians would approach the family in a different way about autopsy. I think that's probably true. Right. Then if we had a general understanding about what was going on, I don't think we would either sort of advocate for autopsy in the same way that we do when we have questions. Right. There was no correlation between length of stay and misdiagnosis. And in the NICU population, there was no finding between correlation between gestational age and misdiagnosis. And so... You know, most of our risk factors, I think, were mainly speculative and on our part in the discussion piece um, around what could lead to diagnostic error in an ICU setting. And, you know, I think in, in my clinical work in a pediatric ICU, I think there's a high risk for diagnostic error really just because of the sheer breadth of disease processes that are cared for in one single ICU. Uh-huh. And you can relate to this. Absolutely. I oftentimes will take medical students around an ICU and, and just to show them the wide ranges of patient size and age and disease processes that we're caring for, it's the same care team, which is different than most adult ICUs where they're very, not very, but much more disease specific. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. You'd have a cardiac ICU and a neuro ICU and a trauma ICU and a surgical ICU, where in pediatrics, we that's everything rolled into one. Yeah, even the neonatal ICU is much more homogeneous than Correct. Right. than the PICU. So I wasn't particularly surprised to see that the error rates in this study in the PICU are a little bit higher. 
and I know that uh, there's a study, or actually it's a commentary on a study that uh, Jim Fackler and Randall Wetzel wrote back in 2003, looking at diagnoses over a two-year period that are seen in one PICU, and common things being common. Of course, we see asthma and respiratory failure and RSV, DKA at a fairly regular basis. But once you sort of knock off the top 10 diagnoses, everything else occurs once or twice a year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that that can lead us to make diagnostic error because we may have we may have never seen a disease or we may have not seen a disease in five years. And so this sort of, you know, leads me to a little bit of this idea around sort of the mental models or the diagnostic process that we go through in just diagnosing anything. Yeah. And if we've never seen it before, it's going to be harder for us to get to the diagnosis. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about cognitive bias in diagnostic errors and how that plays in? Sure. This is another interest of mine and, and thinking about, really thinking about critical thinking in medicine and particularly in ICU medicine. And, you know, one of the, the things that we see over and over again is this, this idea of heuristical thinking, rules of thumb, sort of really taking information at face value and saying, this looks like asthma, this is asthma, we're just going to go ahead and move forward with asthma. And then, you know, remembering that we're all taught that everything that wheezes is not uh -huh. asthma. Uh-huh. And so when do we actually go back to that and say, maybe this isn't asthma, uh, you know, maybe this is something different. And, you know, there's this cognitive processing, this dual processing theory where you have two types of, of cognitive processes. You have type one, which is this sort of fast, heuristical, and it, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time. And then type two, which is slow and analytical and takes a lot of time. And, you know, in the fast paced world of medicine now, an outpatient and an inpatient, when do we switch from that fast thinking, sort of just pattern recognition thinking into the slow thinking, where we actually take a second, slow down, look at the data? You know, is this patient really who I thought they were, or do I need to go back to the drawing board, figure out who they are and, and what their disease process is? So I find that sort of part of even thinking about thinking you know, what type of thinking am I using now? You know, am I, when I'm rounding on an asthmatic, am I just assuming they're an asthmatic? Did I accept somebody else's sort of postulation that they're an asthmatic? Um, or have I proven it to myself that that's all this is, is asthma? Well, we can get into that trap really easily. Absolutely. So how do you think that we can improve our diagnostic processes. I was going to say diagnostic testing, but it isn't all testing. It's also the thought process, as you say, is extremely important. Yeah, I think one of the mainstays of being a good diagnostician is to be a little bit skeptical and be a good communicator and a good listener. You know, the large majority of diagnosis is in the history and physical. And if we become really good history takers and good and, and put a priority on our physical exam, most of the time we're going to arrive at the right diagnosis uh, and sort of fundamentally continuing to instill in our students and residents and fellows the importance of taking a careful history. Oftentimes I feel like in ICUs we rely on our consultants to take the more complete history. Mm -hmm. I see that over and over mm -hmm. again, that oftentimes a consultant will come back and say, did you know, this, <laughs> uh, you know about this patient? Yep. And you'll say, I had not heard that. You know, that, <laughs> that changes our whole model of what's going on. Yep. 
Yep. So, you know, I think that you know, we need to strike the balance between efficiency and completeness. Yeah, I, I think uh, we sometimes also get sucked into the monitoring and all of the data that's absolutely. up on the wall and forget about the information we can get from touching the patient. Oh, absolutely. No, I think we've somehow devalued the physical yeah. exam. You know, we may pick up something and it may be at one out of 100 patients, but, you know, if if we can do that and prevent spending money on unnecessary diagnostic tests or lessen length of stay because we arrive at the correct diagnosis sooner or, you know, worst case scenario, preventing the patient from dying, like we found in our studies, by just sort of opening up the diagnostic toolbox again and saying, let's look for something else. Do you think it's important that we, you mentioned that the frequency of autopsies seems to be decreasing. Do you think it's important in this day and age with such sophisticated imaging and a lot of times you can get a view inside the body that is unbelievable compared to what was available when I was in training? So do we need to have autopsies? Should we be striving for a higher frequency of autopsies? What do you think? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I think it's a great question. And I think that you know, if you did a, a post-mortem or, you know, if you had pre-mortem imaging, the large majority of malformations and things like that may be picked up. But there's still, I think, some value in autopsy and sort of understanding histology. And I think one of the more interesting things that I've come across in the last couple of years is sort of the post-mortem genetic metabolic autopsy. Uh, in patients where we don't know uh, what was going on, oftentimes it may be a, a baby or a small child who comes in with altered mental status or seizure and progresses and, and dies, and we don't have a good answer. Approaching the family about doing some postmortem genetic testing may not only inform the family about what happened with this child, but may inform what goes on with future children. So I think imaging, to a point, can give us a lot of information and is a very useful tool. But I do think. You know, in the cases where, particularly the cases where we were uncertain about what was going on, autopsy is invaluable for sort of informing our future practice, but also allowing us to have a conversation with the family who just lost a loved one to say, you know, we really did get to the bottom of this, and, and this is what was going on. And it may give them, in some different way, a little bit of a different closure to losing a loved one to, to understand exactly what happened. That is certainly true, but I've also had the experience, as I'm sure you have, of sometimes the autopsy doesn't give you the answer, and you're left with, why did this child die? Any thoughts or comments on that? I mean, I think think that's a, no, I don't know. I think that's a tough position to be in, Um, but being, one, I think it goes back to communication. First of all, letting families know what information we can and cannot find out in an autopsy Mm -hmm. is very important, particularly when we consent them for autopsy, to understand these are the things that we may be able to find and these are the things that we may not be able to find. Was there anything in the literature that you reviewed about non-diagnostic autopsies or was it solely focusing on... We really drilled into diagnostic autopsies. So that's a great question. You know, what, what percentage of autopsies result in no additional data? I think that's sort of the the question on the other end of the coin is you don't want to be autopsying everyone because that's resource utilization. And exactly like you said, it may not give any additional information to the healthcare providers or the family. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think it's it's interesting, but I think it does go back to to communication, one, to the family, and two, to the pathologist to say, here's the question Uh I have. uh And 
you know, I know a lot of surgeons end up going down and actually working with the pathologist during the autopsy, and I think it would be insightful for medical teams and ICU physicians to be there during the autopsy so that you can actually, you know, the pathologist isn't just reading a discharge summary. Right. I've done that on occasion when I've had a particularly puzzling Uh uh, case. But as Did I, you find it helpful? Sometimes you get a surprise diagnosis, but, you know, sometimes you're left still not knowing why the, you know, what happened. Right. So I don't know what the answer is to that. So what do you think the implications of all of this are for our current practice and where do we go next? Well, I'm, I'm much more interested in diagnosis in real time mm-hmm. um, and interested in studying how diagnosis progresses through a hospitalization, particularly in our in long-term hospitalization. You know, when in the course of a respiratory failure patient who we don't really have a diagnosis for, do we go for bronchoscopy right. or do we uncover a fungal infection that we didn't know about? When do we do an echocardiogram on a patient with persistent tachycardia and find that they have myocardial dysfunction or myocarditis? I think studying that in real time, it's difficult to do because I think oftentimes physicians have a hard time telling you their diagnostic process. And a lot of it becomes even retrospective, you know, after a week of service or after a call, you know, what did you do? It's hard to sort of see diagnosis happen in real time in ICUs. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think that's where you know, so I'm struggling with the design of the next phase of this. And you can't, I don't think you can glean a lot from ICD-9 codes because I think it takes, it takes a lot for a physician to change their ICD-9 code yeah. from, from this to that to actually show you, oh, wow, they completely changed the way they were thinking about this patient. So I don't know. I mean, that's what I'm the most interested in. I'm most interested in that in real time. And then I'm the most interested in teaching the learners about the diagnostic process Mm-hmm. really overtly, and so that they can recognize the traps that they can fall into, you know, like the cognitive errors. Uh-huh. You know, I always find, you know, there. I think if you Wikipedia or Google cognitive, <laughs> cognitive biases, you come up with there are 90 different cognitive biases that you can fall into. And, you know, one of them that I think is interesting is sort of the availability bias, you know, so the, the diagnosis that you come across the most frequently is the diagnosis that you're going to pin on the next person. Uh-huh. So I think about that during, you know, RSV season. Yeah, you're starting to yeah. see lots of RSV patients and, you know, you come into call and you admit seven patients and they all have RSV. You know, the likelihood of it is one of them is going to have something different. Somebody right. wants difference to their RSV. And so when do you go back and question? Or sort of the anchoring bias of you sort of close the loop prematurely on your diagnostic processing and just, Assume that whatever was written in the chart or whatever what was signed out to you is, is, is correct. Right, right. Common things are common, and so we tend to assume the asthmatic is an asthmatic, but after some period of time when they're just not getting better, yeah, exactly. there's something different about this asthmatic, and then you right. start thinking about other things. But how, how and when that process occurs is right. certainly not defined. No, and I think even you know using rounds as a time to bring that up. And so when do you, when do you do that? When do I do that? Is it day three? Is it day four? Uh-huh. You know, when is it allowed, when is the asthmatic allowed to still be an asthmatic? <laughs> you know, and that's yep. sort of the question we often ask ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we go through so many handoffs. Yeah. You know, that sometimes yeah. I think that that's one of the ways that, you know, if I sign out to you on a Monday morning and you inherit an asthmatic three days in, uh-huh. you still need sort of two days to get your handle on it. Right. 
And then you start saying, wait a second. This has been five why, days why, now. Why right, is this? Why a... is this asthmatic still here? Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think the more that we talk about it and the more we learn about the ways that we think, I think the less likely we are to fall into these traps and, and make errors. So can you kind of sum up a final bottom line message for, for all of us? Sure. I mean, the, the takeaways for me are that diagnostic error is happening in every clinical setting. And this study really shows that there are a fraction of ICU patients that have a profound enough diagnostic error that if we knew the diagnosis existed while they were alive, it may have changed our management. But I think we're just scratching the surface of the impact that diagnostic process and diagnostic error has on medicine, both from a patient outcome standpoint and from a healthcare cost standpoint. So I think we need more prospective in real-time studies around diagnostic error and diagnostic processing to really get at the heart of this and inform the way that we educate the next generation on how to use all the diagnostic tools they have around them to make efficient and correct diagnosis. Well, thank you very much, Jason. That was really sure. an interesting paper and, and an interesting topic. Great. Well, it was very nice talking with you. You too. We have been talking today with Dr. Jason Custer from the University of Maryland about the article, Diagnostic Errors in the Pediatric and Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, a Systematic Review, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2015. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. SCCM's popular Critical Care Ultrasound and Critical Care Ultrasound Pediatric courses will be held August 16th and 17th, 2015, in Chicago, Illinois, USA. Expand beyond the basics with the Advanced Critical Care Ultrasound course, which will take place on August 18th, 2015, also in Chicago, Illinois, USA. Limited space is available, and these courses traditionally sell out. For more information, visit www.sccm.org slash ultrasound. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.